All right, let's turn together to Romans chapter 16, if you're following along, and uh, one of our Bibles in the back, that's page 951. We're going to be wrapping up Romans. I intended to, to finish today. I've gone back and forth on, on how much time I wanted to spend here at the end. I was going to do two weeks, and I was going to do one, but as I dug into this last verse of this letter, I feel like we need to do two weeks to give it justice, which may sound odd to you because it's really short. I mean, how can you spend two weeks on like a little tiny verse? But I think you'll see that we need to use it to review what we've learned so far. So we've taken our time through this letter. We've, we haven't skipped a verse. We've gone through the whole thing. And, and as I have said to you, in fact, I used this metaphor a little bit earlier today. When you think about it as you approach God's word and you hear the gospel again and again, and, and just to, to clarify our terms here, the gospel sometimes is spoken of kind of nebulously. It's like this grace thing out there. But specifically, the, the gospel means good news. And the good news is that though we are sinners and deserve eternal punishment, that God sent his son to take our punishment, and that if we will trust him, that our punishment will rest on Jesus, and that in that great exchange, he gets our sin, and we get his grace. So the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. That's the good news. The good news is that Jesus will take away my sin, that he was punished for my sin, and will give me his righteousness, his goodness, if I will trust him. That's the good news. It's, it's not this nebulous kind of, we're all nice to each other, God's nice, he's like a great grandfather in the sky with a, with a big beard, like with Werther's Candies. Remember the Werther's Candies commercials when we were kids? It's like, like your grandfather has like the tweed sweater on with like the leather patches, and he drives an old Volvo, and when you go visit him, he gives you Werther's Candies. It's, it's like, so that's not the gospel. The gospel's not this kind old grandfather on a cane bending over and like, tussling the hair of his grandson. That, that's not grace. Grace is way more scandalous than that. And the scandal is that the eternal Son of God, who had never sinned, took sin upon himself so that we could get his goodness. That's scandalous. Grace is always scandalous. So we have taken our time through these 16 chapters of Paul's letter to the Roman church, which many theologians would say is the most important theological document that has ever been written. It's hard to say that because the other 65 books of the Bible are really important too. But in this letter, we have discerned again and again and again the reminders of God's grace. And so now we come to the end of this letter. And we have taken our time through verses 25 and 26 to set ourselves up for today. So we're going to talk today and then next week, and then we'll be done with Romans, about gospel and glory. Now those terms are nebulous. I've already defined the first one. We're going to read these verses and then I want to define the second one. So if the gospel is the good news that the Son of God took on my sin, if I trust him and will give me his goodness, then that's my only hope. It's the bedrock of our faith. But that connects to glory in a very important and specific way. Let's read these verses together. Now to him, verse 25, who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So in these three verses, Paul connects together gospel and glory. Now those are two religious terms that get thrown around a lot. I've already defined gospel for you. But what about glory? Glory. I've told you this little anecdote before, but not too long ago I was talking to my son and, and asking him to define what glory is. We go through these things at night called catechisms where we teach them 
you know, what their religion is, what they believe about the Bible and so forth. And, and, and he told me that, that, uh, that the fact that God is glorious means that he's shiny. I think a lot of us have that kind of idea. Like, like it's this Lord of the Rings thing when Gandalf comes back from the dead. Like here's these hobbits and they're in the forest and all of a sudden like this wizard comes out of the blue and, and he's shining and he's bright and you can't look at him and you fall down because your eyes are blinded. Like that's God's glory. And so if he were to show up today in physical presence somehow, that, that we would all see this shiny light and we'd fall down, that that's what glory means. So, so when we speak of God's glory, what we're meaning is that that great grandfather in the sky in his tweed sweater and leather patched elbows, he, he's also really shiny. See what happens to our religion? It becomes more like folklore, which is why we have to take our time through God's word to define our terms. So Paul says here in this section, as he ends it, that he wants these people to be strengthened in the gospel. That's how they'll be strengthened for their sojourn. But if all that happens, if they are strengthened in the gospel, if they're resting in the gospel, the result of all that is that God will get glory. So today and the next week, we're going to talk about how the good news, the gospel, leads to God being glorified. Or we could say it this way, God glorifies himself by showing us how gracious he is. God's glory doesn't mean that he's shining, although I guess maybe he is. But God's glory means that he's great. And he's great in all kinds of ways. So if the gospel is the good news that I don't have to suffer for my sin because Jesus already suffered for me, that shows God's glorious grace. Now, God's also glorious in his faithfulness, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his wisdom, in his justice. God's glory encompasses all of his attributes. So if you were to like define to your friend, maybe who is a new friend and doesn't know your family very well, and they were to say, well, what's your husband like? You would say, well, my husband is funny, and my husband is kind, and my husband also likes to watch football on Saturdays, and that kind of annoys me. Like, those are three attributes of my husband. God has tons of attributes, and, and all of those are glorious. They're, they're, they're his greatness in, on display, so his faithfulness and his mercy. But I think what we'll find, and we're going to look at this in just a moment, is that perhaps if we can say this, and we're treading up against being a little bit um, too hyperbolic. We're, we're, we're maybe saying a little too much when we say this because God has balance in all of his attributes. But if we can say this and, and edge up against maybe being a little bit inaccurate, maybe the attribute that God wishes to display the most in this world, which is like a big arena where he displays his attributes, is his grace. So gospel and glory do go together because the gospel shows God's glorious grace. And what Paul is saying here at the end of this letter, and I've already said to you that this is Paul's only letter, and he wrote several, in which he ends with a doxology or a praise. And I think it's because this, this letter is so dense with gospel, it's so packed full with grace, that Paul wants the people who are reading this letter, and we ourselves today, to have exultation, to, to exult in the fact that God has done so much for us, and that through that, God gets glory. Now, it's easy to say, well, we're together today, and we, we sing songs about Jesus, and we, we read stories about Jesus, and therefore, we're, we're saying to him, you're great, and he gets glory on a Sunday, because the Sunday people are together in the Sunday place. But I think what Paul is saying to us is that that it's, this isn't just like a religious gathering thing once a week, that, 
if we're really understanding the, the density of the grace, the overwhelming weight of the grace that we have taken our time over the past few years, few years to discern, that we can do nothing but exult in, rest in, enjoy God's grace every day. And that through that, he gets glory. So, so gospel connects to glory. Because in the gospel, the good news, God's grace shines. Because he is great and his grace is great. That's why Paul ends the way he ends. Because he doesn't want them to walk away from all the things that he said. He doesn't want us to walk away from all the things that we have learned here in this letter and just sort of pack them away on some theological shelf on our heads. Instead, Paul wants us to, to marinate in that grace all the time. And thereby we are strengthened, as you see there in verse 25, and God is glorified. So what I want us to see the next couple of weeks as we finish up is that God deserves glory. God is the glorious one, and he made this world for his glory. And you could say, well, didn't sin mess that all up? Well, at least temporarily. But God had a plan even for that. He wasn't left wringing his hands trying to figure out, how do I fix all this? It's a mess. God made the world the way he wanted it. And though he's not responsible for our sin, he fixes the problem. So God is glorious. He made a world in which his glory would shine. And if you think about it, if we were innocent and had never sinned, would we ever really understand this amazing attribute of grace? Let me think about it. If, <clears throat> if you think about your relationships kind of as a, as a filter through which you can look at God, I think it maybe it's helpful. We all have friendships that have all gone along relatively well. Like you have these friends out there and they're kind of surfacey and you know you see each other at like PTO events or bake sales or like neighborhood block parties or your kids go to school together whatever and and you're nice, you know, maybe once a year your families get together and barbecue on the back deck and and that's fine. And those relationships are marginally satisfying. But then we all have these other relationships. The ones that have gone through storms. People that have been your friends for years, maybe even decades. You've hurt each other. You've slandered each other. You've lied about each other. You've resisted each other. You, you've really, really hurt each other. But, but every time you come back together and, and you're for, you forgive each other. And it's kind of like that proverbial broken bone that some doctors say when it grows back together actually is stronger than it once was because it calcifies and it forms this bond. And that's what our friendships sometimes do when they go through storms and trials, though they might be gut-wrenching and though for a time perhaps there is, there is schism, there is division among the friendships. Our marriages are like this, that God puts them back together and, and having weathered those storms, the relationships are actually stronger and sweeter and more precious to us. I think the gospel is like that. If we had never needed the gospel because we had never sinned, would we really understand how great God's grace is? Would we really get his glory? I mean, God could have made a world. He, he could have designed it this way. This was not outside the, the purview of his power to make a world where no one would sin. You might like that. You might like having little minions who run around and do your, your bidding and every whim you have. Maybe you'd like that. But all you are to those little minions who obey your every whim is a tyrant that people appease. God's not like that. 
God created a world that he allowed to be messy so that, don't miss this, so that his grace would be on display. And therefore, he gets more glory and we get more joy because we're forgiven. So I want us, as we walk away from this letter, to see that every day from our lives, our God's glory should be on display as he pours his grace out on us. And then through that, we are encouraged. We can rest. We can find hope. So we're going to discern today in chapters 1 through 11. We're not going to read all the verses. Don't, don't worry. We're just going to do a quick overview. That in, verses, in chapters 1 through 11, that God is most glorified when his grace is enjoyed. The next week, we'll take some time to talk about the fact that God is really glorified when we display his grace. That's what chapters 12 to 16 taught us as we went through. So today, I don't really want you to necessarily jot things down that you're going to go do when you get home. Sometimes it's okay just to rest, and that's mostly what I want us to do today. I'll give you a few implications of how this might be worked out in your daily living, but mostly what I want you to do today is just kind of to rest and listen to how much God loves you. So we'll talk today about the fact that we glorify God as we rest in his grace, and then again next week we'll talk about the fact that we glorify God as we share his grace. That's chapters 12 to 16. So we glorify God as we rest in his grace. That's where we're going to park today in chapters 1 through 11. If you don't mind, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So go over one book. In fact, one page for a lot of you. Chapter 1, verse 18. Now the reason we're here, the reason we're going to take a few moments here, is that if you'll notice, you can keep your finger where you've just turned, back in Romans chapter 16, verse 27, Paul says, To the only wise God. Why does, why does Paul pick that attribute, God's wisdom? Because we're talking about God's glory here. He could have picked other ones. He could have said, to the only merciful God be glory, to the only righteous God be glory, to the only truthful God be glory. Why does he pick God's wisdom? Let's look in verse 18. Paul says, Therefore the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, I will overthrow it. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews And folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Turn with me also, if you don't mind, to Ephesians chapter 3. So a couple more books over. You'll find the letter to the church in Ephesus. And Paul says something relatively similar similar there in Ephesians chapter 3. In verse 7 of Ephesians 3, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
So in 1 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, Paul connects God's wisdom to his plan to save people. So that's why Paul picks that attribute in Romans chapter 16, verse 27. To the only wise God be glory, Paul says there in that verse. Why does he pick that attribute? Because in God's wisdom, he made a plan to rescue the world. Paul unpacks that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3. And what he's saying is, God's wisdom is on display when his redemptive plan is unfolded, when his plan to save people is unfolded. So, though we would not say that Bible and gospel are synonyms, like, I'm not holding in my hands a book called the gospel. This is a book called the Bible. But what is contained in these pages is the message of the gospel from beginning to end. This is good news. Maybe you've never seen that. Maybe that sounds new to you. But that's what this is. It's a big story. That God made the world that he knew would fall into sin. And yet as soon as the first sin occurred, he runs to the first parents we had. He runs to Adam and Eve and he says, I know you've sinned. But I promise you, I'm going to fix this. So by chapter 3 of Genesis, when the sin enters into the garden, God shows up, not in anger and not in wrath exclusively, but even more so against that backdrop of his anger and his justice. His grace shines. And what does he promise there in Genesis 3 to fix the, the problem? What's the remedy going to be to the brokenness? He's going to slay his son. So for the rest of the pages of this thing we call the Bible, which contains good news, it's the unfolding of the bringing about of grace. So that's why Paul says what he says in Romans chapter 16, verse 27, to the only wise God, this wise God who planned the world the way he planned it, who, who executed his plan in such perfection that his promise of grace came through his son and is available to all who will believe. And, and that's how the world gets fixed. God's wisdom is on display as his gracious purposes are unfolded. So God's wisdom brings about redemption, brings about salvation. It brought it about perfectly. So God's wisdom here means more than the fact that God's just smart or clever. He plans all, he sees all, and he sure ensures that everything comes together for his glory and our good. That's why the, that's why the gospel is what it is. It, it makes him look great. That's his glory. And then we get good news to save us from our sin. So wisdom carries with it the idea of sovereignty, of bringing about God's purposes. One last passage before we jump through the first 11 chapters of Romans. In Ephesians chapter 1, I think Paul makes this point that I'm trying to make to you pretty clear. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear that God made the world for a certain purpose. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's prehistoric planning, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And this is the purpose. This, is, this, was, the, this was the reason for it all, beginning of verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. God made the world in which he knew we would all sin 
so that his grace, which is glorious, would be praised. And he says that several more times in these verses. He did this to the praise of his glorious grace. He did this for the purpose of making his glorious grace shine. And that's why Paul says what he says in Romans chapter 16, verse 27. He wants these people, verse 25, to be strengthened in the gospel. And as that happens, God's glorious grace is on display. So this is more than just a Sunday thing. This means that every day, as we rest in the grace of Jesus Christ, that God's glory is on display. In your own mind, in your own heart, and for everybody who's watching you, your kids, your friends, your neighbors. So, we glorify God as we rest in His grace. So we rest in the hope that, and I'm going to go through the chapters briefly, we rest in the hope that our treason has been forgiven. So we glorify God as we rest in His grace every day. And we do that by resting. What do we rest in? What, what, what hope do we have? Well, first of all, we rest in the hope that our treason has been forgiven. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, through down through chapter 3, verse 20, and then again in chapter 5, we learn that, that we are sinners. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And one of the darkest portions of all of Scripture now extends through chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul unfolds with, with dark language and, and dark images just how sinful we are. And it comes to a crescendo in chapter 3 when he says in verse 10, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Then he says, Our throats are open graves, and the venom of asps is on our lips. These are the kind of images that Paul paints here. But we know that God didn't leave it that way and that our treason has been forgiven. We're going to look at where the forgiveness comes in just a moment. But we've been through the letter, so we know the story. So chapter 1 declares that, that God displayed himself to the world. He offered himself to the world, but they didn't want him. They rejected him and they ran away from him. I think as evangelicals, people who believe the Bible, that we are in constant danger of, of miscommunicating this, of downplaying this, because it's not very politically correct. It's, it's, it's not very fun to listen to. It's certainly not very fun to talk about. That is that we're all sinners and that we deserve punishment. And you might look at that and say, well, why didn't the great grandfather in the sky in his tweed sweater who's kind of shiny, why didn't he just kind of let it go? No, he understands we're weak. Because one act of sin is an utter act of open warfare. It's treason. Against the God who made us and eternally loved us. And if God just dismisses the sin like it's no big deal... 
he just kind of overlooks it or winks at it because he knows we're broken and weak, then that makes his holiness look marginal. And then his glory is really brought into question. God cannot look upon sin and dwell with sinners. It just can't happen. It's not in his nature. He can't do it. If he does it, he ceases to be God, and then he's not worth worshiping. And that's why even one act of sin, let alone the ten that probably all of us have already committed today, let alone the hundreds we committed last week, and the millions upon millions we have accumulated in our life, all those sins say that we have committed treason against a holy God. And yet, despite all of that, our treason has been forgiven. So, the problem is, of course, after we come to Christ in faith, we still sin. So what do you need to be reminded of every day? That that's been handled. That you do not stand condemned before God because he loves you through his son. Our treason has been forgiven. I'm giving you a bit of a guide that I would like you to keep somewhere, maybe in your Bible or in a notebook somewhere, so that as we walk away from Romans, you can come back to it and use it for your worship, for your sojourn. So you, you make God's glory look great. You glorify him as you rest in the fact that your treason has been forgiven. Um, I think that this leads us to, to be merciful people. Here's an implication if you're looking for implications for your life. If it's true that God has forgiven us so much, it means that we have to learn to be merciful people. Why do we get to set a higher standard than God? So we, we really, at the end of the day, we don't want justice. We, we, we say we do. But if you got justice, if, if the world got justice, it'd be vaporized. Because that's what we deserve. Yet God doesn't. Instead, he shows us mercy, and therefore we have to learn to be merciful people. And that can only be worked out in us as we rest in this gospel. Secondly, we rest in the hope that our pardon came through scandalous grace. I've already said, I've already said to you that grace is not grace unless it's scandalous. And In verse 21 down through verse 26, we see this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, His perfection, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, how did Jesus redeem us? Verse 25 tells us, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's a big theological word. Propitiation just means that Jesus bore God's wrath. Remember, God cannot lower His standards. He can't just wink at sin. So what did he do? He scandalously slayed his son. That's grace. So we glorify God. We make his glorious grace look great as we rest in the fact that our treason has been forgiven. But by what means was that treason forgiven? Not by God just dismissing it. No, our pardon. Because we, we stand before the judge. And, and the verdict's coming. But for those who place their faith in Christ, the verdict is pardon. Because our advocate, our attorney, our lawyer pleads his merits on our behalf. Jesus says to the judge, to his father, It's no doubt that that this defendant is guilty. The evidence is incontrovertible. 
But judge who happens to be my father, what I want you to do is to apply my goodness to this person's account and I'll take their sin. That's the scandal of the gospel. That Jesus, the eternal son of God, who never sinned, took our sin and gave us his grace. So you glorify God as you rest in that pardon, which is scandalous. And you glorify God as you display that to the world around you. To your kids, who often don't do what you want them to do. To your friends who turn their back on you and slander you. To your spouse who hurts you and is not who he or she was initially all cracked up to be. See, grace is giving people what they don't deserve. If mercy is not giving people what they do deserve, remember, our treason's been forgiven. Grace goes beyond that. Grace is like mercy on steroids. Grace gives people what they don't deserve. What do we deserve for our sin? Vaporization. What did God give us instead? His best gift. His son. That's grace. And we do nobody any good, including ourselves, if we make it this sort of nebulous, Jesus is nice and God is nice and we all get along kind of thing. This is not kumbaya theology. This is real stuff, and it's gritty, and it's raw, but it's where our hope is found. So you glorify God as you talk about that scandalous good news. You you glorify God as you rest in that good news. You glorify God as you share that good news with other people. You glorify God. You make his glorious grace look great as you live that way with each other. Thirdly, you glorify God. We glorify God as our incessant pursuit to establish our own identity needs no longer to continue. That's kind of a mouthful. Our incessant pursuit to establish our identity doesn't have to continue. Why do I say it that way? Because we're all on that path. And one way or another, you're always trying to prove yourself. And that's why Paul says what he says in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, that's Adam, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's our condition. But verse 15 shows us the remedy. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's already established in this letter that we're sinners and that Jesus became a curse for us to remove our curse. But he comes back to these similar ideas in chapter 5 so that we'll understand that even after we've trusted Jesus, that his righteousness is our confidence for every day. You see, before we were in Adam's line, like a family tree. And that's a corrupt, doomed family tree. But if we place our confidence in Jesus, we get a new family tree. 
But it's not just this thing which secures for us some eternal golden-plated mansion somewhere up in the clouds. No, the Gospels for every day, our righteousness, our standing, our identity is found in Jesus every day because we still sin. And yet, we are professional posturers. Write that down, okay? We are professional posturers. We posture all the time. I want you to think well of me. I want you to think I'm smart. I want you to think I'm really funny. I want you to think I'm super nice. I want you to think my kids are awesome. So I put them in like horizontally, you know, striped rugby shirts from the Gap that cost too much money. So you think they're cute. And then every once in a while, I slip a comment into Facebook about how they may have just made the honor roll. Right? And then if you miss that, I put it on the back of my car. I'm a professional posturer. Because I believe, and we all believe, that somehow what you think of me forms my identity. I'm nice, I'm funny, I'm smart, I'm rich, whatever the case may be. And the fact of the matter is, we don't even have to teach our kids this. They come out of the womb like this. We had one of Jack's little friends from school yesterday after our school carnival. And... um, they got in the car, and this is a sweet little kid, and he, their parents aren't going to hear this sermon, so I can say this. Um, and he got in the car, and he's like, oh, this is a pretty nice car, but our car's better. And he was, I mean, it's like, it's like you're, you're eight, man. You know, like you're eight years old. You didn't buy that car. And by the way, it's not better. You know, this is the kind of stuff we're thinking, right? <laughs> because we're always posturing all the time. Like, no, it's really not, you know. But you can't say that because you know you're posturing. You don't have to teach kids this. They're like this. We're all like this. We want people to think well of us because of how smart and capable we are. But what I find as I walk away from verses 12 to 21 of chapter 5 is I don't have to posture. Now, I still do. But my incessant pursuit to make you think well of me, to form my identity based upon your opinions of me, is fruitless. It's futile. It's unending. It's exhausting. So... The gospel's for every day. The good news is I don't have to rest in what you think of me. Now, I want you to think well of me. I'm not going to go out and say, screw you. But I care, but that's not where my identity is. Because you know what? I'm going to fail you. There's always going to be somebody smarter, wealthier, more clever, more capable. What do you do when you run up against those people? It just reminds you once again of those echoes in your head which says, perform, perform, perform. Jesus says, perform for us, and we rest in him. Fourthly, we glorify God as we rest in his grace, and we rest in the hope that we have been freed from sin's power. We took our time through this as we went through chapters 6 and 7, but that's exactly what these chapters teach us. And when it really comes down to it, we don't have to serve sin anymore. In chapter 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, verse 6 of chapter 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 7 really says the same things. Verse 24 of chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been freed from sin's power. Sin's presence is still with us. We still obey it sometimes. But the fact of the matter is, we don't have to. 
Why is this good news? Because sin never leads to happiness. We've all tried it. We all have anecdotes from our past where we tried it. But you know what? Those anecdotes really aren't that old because we tried it yesterday and maybe even this morning. It never leads to happiness as incessant as our pursuit might be. What God has done for us has given us now the power to stand against that and to pursue real joy. So every time you sin, every time, whether people see it or whether it's private inside you, it's you saying one more time, I believe that joy can be found somewhere else than God. That's why Adam and Eve sinned. Satan convinced them that happiness was to be found somewhere else, and they gave in. And every sin since then has been the same thing. Now, it dresses up in different clothes, but it's always that at its core. A pursuit of happiness in some other way from some other source. And so what you have to do is remind yourself, that's false. Sinning against God will not bring me happiness. And the good news for me, if I'm a Christian, is I don't have to serve sin. I've been freed from sin's power. And it really comes down to it, since we make such a big deal in our church about discipleship, helping people you know, grow in their faith in Christ, you know, the sojourn of faith. Discipleship, when it really comes down to it, it's really simple. You're helping another person fight for joy in Christ. That's it. That's why discipleship is really not that hard. Now, I'm not saying it's not difficult. It's challenging. It's, you know, it's going to cost you something. Helping another person do that's tough. But conceptually, it's not that difficult. When you get together over coffee or however you do discipleship, what you're doing is you're saying to your friend or to your kid or to your spouse or whatever, I want you to not serve sin because that won't make you happy. Jesus will make you happy. I want you to learn how to do that. That's it. So go do it. It's pretty simple, right? Uh, we rest in the hope not only of these four things, but also we rest in the hope that we're no longer orphans. Chapter 8, verse 12. Yeah, I mean, this letter's dense, and we're just skimming the surface here. You have to go back and listen to the sermons if you want more detail. But in chapter 12, or in chapter 8, rather, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For, if you, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, dear Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So, so the good news here is that we were fatherless. But because of Jesus, we're no longer fatherless if we'll place our faith in Jesus. After next week, after we finish Romans, I'm going to do a series in the family. We're going to talk about marriage and child rearing and things like that. Um, National Orphan Sunday is coming up November the 3rd. So I'm going to include that in some of my discussion about child rearing and how the elders would like to see our church become more engaged in orphan care. I love to see families come into our church who've adopted, and that's becoming a real big passion of of our church and our family. But it's so rooted in Scripture. Why do we care about the 153 million? You heard me right. 153 million orphans around the world. Why do we care? Because we've been adopted. We're orphans. We're spiritual orphans. We'll talk about this on November the 3rd, but but one of the most profound things that happened in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against God, the first sin, is that for the first time in all of human history, there were fatherless children. That had never happened before. But the father shows up and he promises that he'll fix it. And eventually the father, God, sends his son, 
who temporarily became fatherless, because remember on the cross, God had to turn his back on his son. Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, my father, why have you forsaken me? Because God couldn't, God couldn't fellowship with sin. We, the fatherless, were rescued by Jesus becoming fatherless to take us back to the Father. That's profound. The good news of the gospel is that though we were orphans, we are no longer, and now we have a dear Father whom we can trust. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. Um, the sixth thing for today, we can rest in the hope that our pain and frustration has a purpose and an end. You see this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You see it also really clearly here in chapter 8. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Down in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words because we struggle. And though we posture and put on a good face, inside many of us are broken and decaying and sad. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What's the purpose? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's that mean? He means that he's going to fix everything. He's going to take us back to the point where we no longer understand the the peril and the damage of sin. Because one day we'll be with him and there won't be any more sin. And all the the suffering of this world is propelling us toward that. It's ripping away our sin. It's ripping away our confidence in, in this world. And it's replacing it with a confidence in God. So that one day when we stand with him in the eternal state, we will no longer be sinners. We'll no longer be rebels. We'll no longer be treasonous. The sufferings sort of are a catalyst, a a crucible, if you will, to refine us, to take away all the bad and replace it with all the good. That's what our sufferings do. But notice in verse 28, it's only for those who love God. That is to say, if you're not a Christian, I don't know necessarily what the purpose of your suffering is. It might seem purposeless because your eternal destiny is not refinement. Your eternal destiny is not the taking away of sin and once again coming into full fellowship with God. Your, your destiny is punishment. And I don't say with any sort of glee or happiness. It's just the truth, and I've got to tell you that. So my plea to you today is to place your faith in Jesus. Abandon self-righteousness. Place your confidence in him. And then you can know that even your suffering, your personal manifestation of the brokenness of this world has a purpose. And it has an end. It will come to pass. It'll end. So you glorify God as you rest in confidence that even through your suffering, that there's purpose in it. Two more. We rest in the hope that we will never be alone. We've read these verses many times as we have gone through this book, this letter, because they're so important. What then shall we say to these things? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 38, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. You know what? Deep down, I worry that you'll abandon me. I worry that even sometimes the people who are closest to me will turn their back on me. It's, it's, It's innate. It's in me. 
partially because I've seen it happen. People that I thought loved me have turned their back on me. And I wonder that if you knew everything about me, if you would too. But if I worry that a human who is also fallible and fallen, if I worry that a human like that might turn their back on me if they knew everything about me, what about God? Because he knows everything about me. And yet, what has he done? Rather than vaporizing me, he gave me his son, his best gift, scandalous grace. And that's a promise that he'll never, ever leave me. I think deep down all of us feel pretty alone. Even those of us who have pretty good friends and pretty good marriages and pretty good families, all of us deep down at times feel pretty alone. Which is why you cannot replace relationship with God with anybody else. It doesn't work. And I think that ache of loneliness, which is in there for most of us, right? Honestly. I think that ache of loneliness that is, that is there within us is the reason why we pursue satisfaction to, to take away that ache from our relationships. And, and even the best marriage can't do that. Even the best friendships can't do that. Which is why God is there. And he puts the ache there so that you will turn to him and find eternal fellowship with him. And then the eighth thing and the last thing for today. <clears throat> we can rest in the hope that God's plans are breathtaking and unbreakable. That's what chapters 9 through 11 are really all about. It unfolds God's huge redemptive purposes throughout all of history. We won't take time to unpack those. But in verse 33 of chapter 11, Paul responds to this notion. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Very similar to what we find in chapter 16, verse 27. So chapters 1 through 11 of Romans is the unfolding of God's grace. How does Paul end in response? Chapter 11, verse 36. To him be glory forever. So here's the, here's the notion. Here's the thought. As you rest in God's grace in these eight ways I've said to you today, and there's more, but these are kind of the big ones in chapters 1 through 11. As you rest in those eight things, God is glorified because his grace is on display. Remember, that's why he made the world in the first place, and it's why he let us fall. It's why he sent his son to rescue us, so that we would understand grace. So rest in that today. And therein, your God, who made you, and who is rescuing you, gets glory. Rest in this grace, and display it to each other, and talk about it with each other. Next week we'll come back and we'll talk about the fact that those of us who have received this grace, those of us who rest in this grace should share this grace. That's what chapters 12 through 16 are about. So let's stand together. We'll pray. We'll sing our last song.